Welcome to Inside the Cubers Workshop, a show about Cube and the people that play it. I'm your host, Brian Miller. With me today is Phil Stanton. Phil, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, today's topic will be about Phil's unpowered cube and the design philosophies that brought him to design it a little differently than many cubes. Phil's cube features a significantly lower power level than most cubes you might see, and a high level of synergies. It should be quite interesting for anybody looking to design in a direction away from a traditional unpowered cube. Phil, can you give us a little bit of background about yourself, like where you're from? Um, I'm from the suburbs of Chicago. I've lived in Illinois my whole life. These days I work in human resources, so it's bureaucracy full time. <laughs> so you're not actually a doctor of Sylvan descent? No, no. <laughs> that username, the username I picked for themanadrain.com like over 10 years ago, and I've just stuck with it in many places. <laughs> I, I do have this image of you that is like data from Star Trek but also surrounded <laughs> by a bunch of vines, like marrow or something, <laughs> just in my head when I see you on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I like the data avatar. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you've been in Chicago and Illinois for quite a while. How is the, the magic scene there? It's flourishing, I'd say, over the last several years. I um, I don't go to F&M as routinely anymore, but uh, for several years I did, and there's a couple of local stores in my town. I live south of Chicago, uh, so in a more college town area, uh, actually Urbana-Champaign, Illinois, the University of Illinois here. So there's a lot of students who play, as well as, you know, all ages, really. Well, that's, yeah, that's good for, you know, having a lot of people is being near a college. Yeah. Yeah. How did you get started into magic in general? Did you, were you a student there? I started playing magic in fifth grade, <laughs> and it wasn't even the first collectible card game that I played. I first played Overpower, which was the original Marvel licensed collectible card game. Um, wow. And so I, I, I came to magic in like I think the fall of '96 is about the right time, and uh, I had already played another card game first. So these were like the immediate you know successor products to uh, magic. And I had played, you know, the Decipher Star Wars card game a little bit there. I was very, very casual Magic player for years. I had no idea what I was doing or how formats worked or any idea of the wider world. Uh, but I was also pretty young. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, as I got through you know, high school and college, I got into uh, Vintage, actually, or Type 1, because Type 1 players, you know, we still call it Type 1 half the time. <laughs> but I, I haven't played in a long time, but... I actually used to write for SCG about vintage, and I assumed that it was embarrassingly uh, strategically wrong because <laughs> I wrote about numbers rather than any individual strategies. Or you know, I would try to write about strategies, but I didn't have enough tournament experience to explain them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Did you ever transition from vintage into another format before you started Cube, or did you just find out about Cube and go with it? I've. Uh, considered myself to be a drafter for several years. I finally, you know, drafting, I had tried it a couple of times years and years ago, but it finally clicked for me with M11, and I just have drafted hundreds and hundreds of times now. And for Cube, I can't remember what the first thing I read was that had called it Cube, but what I see as sort of the predecessor of my cube was just a box of uh, loose cards that I didn't have any other purpose for. And in high school, we couldn't afford boosters, like we didn't have enough spare money. So we would just shuffle that up and draft it, uh, you know, such as we were in, you know, not very good drafters. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that 
that same box, then I learned what a cube was, and I thought, well, that's kind of like what I was doing already, and then I just started actually selecting cards for it intentionally, and, you know, went from there, and that was five-plus years ago, mm-hmm. and the vision has gradually uh, gotten more more important and more defined over time. It's funny, I, I think that we're going to have a general trend of something like that happening with most people on the podcast, Yeah, um, where people just kind of collectively and simultaneously, but apart from each other, discover the same kind of format where the game's been around so long that you just have a big collection and you're wondering what else can you do with it besides make decks. And, you know, everybody seems to come up with the idea of, well, let's just put everything together and shuffle it up and, you know, draft it. Yeah. It's it's really cool to see that happen on, uh, you know, in multiple places. Yeah, once you know what a booster draft is and you get how fun that is, you know, then... then... Right, and then you're like, well, I don't have $15 for each of my friends. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, we don't happen to have packs. Or, you know, what could we do if we actually picked what we were drafting, you know, more particularly? Yeah. So I, I think that that sort of leads in the direction of cube-like formats. Mm-hmm. So that was a few years ago that you, that you started actually intentionally developing a cube. Yeah, I think around around Scars of Mirrodin time. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's cool. So, what makes your cube different? Uh, it's the lower power level, like you were saying in the beginning. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that it's just much closer to a booster draft of a real format than it is to constructed. Like, I've heard people say cubing is like drafting a constructed deck, and in a best cards cube, you sort of lean that way. You're drafting these hyper-efficient cards, and you're trying to cobble them together into some kind of plan that goes in a specific direction and is very lean and focused. Mm -hmm. But in a booster draft of a real format, you're sort of hobbled. You're going to be drafting things that aren't really... They're not the ideal weapons. You know, they they don't all go together. You'll, You'll have some vanilla 4-2 that you're stuck with or something like that, and you just have to play because you don't have enough of the better or hyper-efficient cards. So, you know, you'll have a deck that it stumbles for a few turns at the beginning of the game, and in a, in a regular best cards cube or in constructed, stumbling for a couple turns, it's over. Mm-hmm. But in, in draft, you know, maybe usually you can sort of recover from that. You have more time. Uh, and that same thing is true in my cube. It's it, because the cards are so much weaker, the speed is lower. I like there isn't even a mono red deck in my cube, although there was at one point. It was much slower than what you would think of as a mono red cube deck. It's it, so it ends up having that main push that the uh cards aren't as perfectly synergistic and the format itself gets slower as a whole. Okay. Was that sort of a design out of necessity, like a budget or an era of magic that you started with, or is it just something you thought that you wanted to develop something more akin to a draftable set, like like you would get in a booster draft, as opposed to a higher-powered cube? I specifically wanted to be closer to regular drafting, and there's no constraint on what kind of sets get included in my cube. Uh, I include even a couple of unglued cards, like Who, What, When, Where, Why, and Blast from the Past that work in the rules. You know, there's no budget limit except that I can't talk myself into buying an Imperial Recruiter or a Grim Tutor. <laughs> <laughs> but the the cube is full of rares. They're just lower power rares. There are a few mythics, but a lot of mythics end up being like just pushed by accident almost to be like one or two mana too good. Mm-hmm. But I, I definitely aimed specifically for the lower power level because I liked how games play in draft. Okay. 
Yeah, some interesting card choices that I saw. There's certainly rares, and there's certainly commons beside them. Like, you've got Starlight and Invoker next to Mungara of Corondor, or Lieutenant Kurtar, or Myogen of Cleansing Fire at the top end. Yeah. Yeah. And you actually cast that. <laughs> like, right. It, it, the games go long enough that an 8-drop, that's just okay. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think there's so many cards in my cube that are completely ineligible for any other cube. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, do they have a purpose? Like, do most of those have a purpose, like a specific deck that they're going into? Yeah, often several. Because one of the things that I look for is that a card shouldn't just be there for one deck unless I really need it to underpin the archetype or something. Mm-hmm. There, you know, I'll try to lean cards toward, you know, Anything that can connect to multiple other themes. If you look at my cube tutor, I have cards tagged with build around, and it's sort of loosely applied, but it gives you an idea that there are dozens of cards in the cube that you, it inclines you to draft your deck in a certain direction once you have it. And so if you, your deck will maybe be a really defined archetype, you know, red-white control or storm or uh, a lands deck or a lab maniac deck, but you'll you'll end up with a couple of these cards that are kind of build-arounds that make your deck incline in a couple of different flavors of whatever archetype it is, uh, depending on what you're putting together. So, like, Lieutenant Kirtar and Mengara and Myogen of Cleansing Fire also all happen to be legendary cards, and Captain Sisse is in my cube. So every once in a while, you'll end up with sort of a, a slower deck that's either green-white or maybe it has some other colors in addition to that, and you'll end up with a build-around aspect to appear if Captain Sisse is, uh, say, picked up in pack one or something, you can tilt your picks toward it. Or maybe you're in a heavy white deck that is happens to be in green and uh, can pick it up later, but it makes it different each time from draft to draft. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it connects with cards like that. I try to um, make cards connect with as many of those elements as possible. I've also had in the past, like, Angel of Flight Alabaster, and that happens to recur by Agenda Cleansing Fire. Uh, So it it has a big impact if I can connect with as many of those things as possible. Okay, that makes sense. What other archetypes are present in the cube? Um... I'd say one that appears a lot is red-black aggro, and that's uh, definitely a challenge to maintain aggressive decks in an environment that inclines itself toward control so much, because including all these wraths, you know, I, I still have sweepers throughout the cube. Everything inclining toward a control environment punishes, you know, playing a, a tutu <laughs> pretty mm-hmm. harshly. I actually recently cut Searing Meditation, which was a linchpin of the red-white control deck, uh, because my players were telling me that it didn't kill anything. All the two-toughness creatures were so unplayable that they weren't getting play- getting into people's decks. Like, they would be the, the 15th pick, you know, toss it in the middle to inform everybody of what what is uh, the dregs of the pack. <laughs> and so, you know... They, the fact that two toughness creatures were so easy to kill with cards like Searing Meditation made them very bad. <laughs> and so I ended up just cutting the Searing Meditation to try to reduce the ways that I've been punishing those little creatures. Mm. There's also a base green devotion deck that hinges around a Carometer's Acolyte, I think is the name of it. The, the four drop that taps to generate mana equal to your green devotion. And that card goes pretty well with Centaur Glade, for example. You can pump mana into tons of things in my cube. Mana outlets are all over the place, and we'll routinely get into games where it's you know ten lands on each side of the board, and everybody's spending their mana every turn in mass quantities. 
so that's a, a powerful engine to be able to do that because you know, you'll you'll have a way to spend that much mana. There's a lands deck right now that's uh, occurs pretty frequently. Um, I've actually it was just yesterday that I was being told by my players that Centaur Vinecrasher was too good uh, because it was able to be recurred so easily. Oh yeah, I've seen a few of those newer cards in there, and I'm curious about stuff like that, like like the Centaur Vinecrasher, because I'm about to put it into a similar cube of mine that uh, is is higher powered, but it's still got the same kind of uh, synergy aspect to it. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's that's one card that looks really, really good for that strategy. I'm hoping it'll give uh, Gruul in particular kind of a more defined archetype than what you find in a lot of cubes. Definitely. It's very difficult to make people play red-green, and yeah. so I, I, I actually I have unbalanced multicolor sections, and I'll end up, you know, any card that people seem to want to play in red-green, I'm hesitant to ever cut it <laughs> because <laughs> I, I, I try to uh, get that color combination more playable. And this, this lands deck in particular has been good at encouraging uh, red, green, and especially red, blue, green, because blue is so essential to it. Uh, trade routes was actually so frequently the limiting factor in decks that I added the two Soratami creatures that I have in there uh, because I needed more abilities that got lands back from your battlefield so you can play them again. Right, that's that's actually a really neat idea. Um, I'm I'm probably going to look at your cube even more closely after our cast because I'm still developing my own cube and and that seems like a neat way to to put lands back into your hand to use for something like Seismic Assault that I saw on your list that I I was wondering about. Well, I want to put it in mine, but like do you find something like that has a a problem being like the triple red cost? Uh, usually the lands deck ends up with enough non basics and ways to fetch lands. Uh, I just actually had this lands deck yesterday, and the seismic assault was not a big deal. I had a couple of dual lands that had red in them. I put two mountains in the deck, and then I could always like harrow for them. Oh, that sounds pretty good. So, uh, yeah, seismic assault was actually just recently replaced molten vortex. Mm-hmm. We had had that in for a little while, and uh, the it was another one of those cards that really encouraged very early game. You play the Molten Vortex, and then every two-toughness creature for the rest of the game is dead. Oh, yeah. So the Seismic Assault tends to be a little later. Uh, and even if it does, you know, with trade routes, end in some very huge hits, like you'll pick up all your lands at the end step, and throw them in uh, at the opponent and kill them in, in one hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's a pretty late game thing, so it's not a not a problem so much. The Seismic Assault works just fine. <laughs> okay, uh, cool. Um, what else did I notice? I noticed a blue mill theme. Yes, mill is very important, and uh, I think this connects to something that you had on the list for later, but part of the problem with enabling control decks is that you can succeed too well. <laughs> uh, yeah. You can you can create uh, games and matchups that will never end. Like, also, having less removal and less powerful removal tends to encourage these board stalls that are just miserable. Like, you, you could end up in a situation where you each have ten creatures, and whoever attacks first is dooming themselves, because blocking is advantaged in magic. You know, and, and combat tricks, like, I have a few in there, but they tend not to be very popular and or do very well, so I mostly have them in there so that there is doubt in combat. <laughs> Like, somebody can play them, and the aggro decks sometimes will use them as tempo tools to clear a blocker. But um, 
it, having these powerful, powerful control decks really does have this risk. And especially with my favorite power toughnesses are like 2-4, or 2-5, or 3-5. Yeah, my favorite power and toughness ratio is probably 3-4. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just yeah. love all those white angels that have power 3 and toughness 4. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's exactly that kind of card that yeah. will you know make it so that attacking is terrible. Uh, yeah. So I, I keep having to come up with ways that push the game to actually end that aren't like too forceful or too punishing. I actually not too long ago cut worst fears from the cube because people were saying that it was just too potent. It, it made a huge swing, which is ironic. If you played in that format, it was unplayable in its own draft format. Also, it's eight mana. It should end the game, right? <laughs> I mean, not necessarily. Like, my genetic cleansing fire doesn't end the game. Uh, you know, but I'll, <laughs> I mean, cards like, uh, Bogart and Hellkite are a huge threat that I can put on my cube because it's an eight mana card yeah. that's worth it. Or Tide Spout Tyrant, you know, it doesn't necessarily end the game, you know, the same way that it would in a more powerful or, you know, powered environment where all of a sudden your opponent has no permanence. It's right. more like, uh, it makes it very hard for your opponent to come back. And so I, I like an 8-drop that does that, but not that it does it in an unfun way. And so Worst Fears was being cited as kind of an unfun thing to have happen. Uh, and it was particularly easy to get that much mana because Mono Black is a thing in my cube. I have both the Magus of the Coffers and Cabal Coffers. And so you know the game isn't going to end before they are going to have the 8-mana. There's not much risk in, in having it in your deck. Mm. And so I have to watch out for cards that you just wouldn't think of as problematic, causing huge problems. Um, like, one of the things from a while ago was I had to cut timely reinforcements because no aggro deck was playable. They would just lose timely reinforcements. Timely reinforcements <laughs> is really strong in general. Yeah. Like, if you put that into a regular cube, like a, a power max on powered cube, yeah. like, aggro suffers from just yeah. that one card. Like, yeah. Lingering Souls is already a thing, and then, you know, just the six life on top yeah. of that would be really really good yeah and at one point in an even stranger turn of events i had to cut elixir of immortality because it was too oppressive like it was <laughs> it was encouraging these matchups where like the blue egg control deck would never ever have to worry about being decked uh you were talking about mill cards is how we got into this and uh the milling is one of the ways that i can make sure the game actually does end so encouraging <laughs> that uh, to be available is important like in the storm deck in my cube which is interesting because it's so it's so lower powered like it's never going to storm 10 or 15 you're storming like four or five mm -hmm. like the empty the warrens uh we we joke that uh you'll never actually attack with those goblins <laughs> like, <laughs> the opponent probably has like three blockers or four blockers you can get through for five damage but you're not going to kill them with that uh, they're just going to eat three of your goblins so really what the empty the warrens is for is for a card like Chiron negotiations or um the hairstrung kodo where you just having a ton of creatures suddenly turns into a ton of damage or milling them with the Hairstrung Kodo. But it, it, it's of course sort of sideways of how you would think about a card like that normally. That's pretty neat. I, Chiron Negotiations was another one that I put on this little short list of interesting cards in your list. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, it's, every card from Mercadia Masks is about games going forever, so I end up looking at Masks block a lot. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> like it, sometimes I think that like masks block was invented to enable stasis effects or something. <laughs> so your so cube is a combination of masks block and Kamigawa block. Is what it sounds like. <laughs> I mean, it, it has it has some elements. <laughs> <laughs> some elements. Yeah. At All one the point, best that, elements, right? <laughs> I, I I certainly hope so. <laughs> um, but yeah, it it ends up having a little bit of everything and I try to learn from, you know, what I can see in a past set. Uh, and I can play almost any theme that has ever been in limited. Like if Watsi published 10 cards about it, it could be a theme in my queue because the cards probably are powerful enough, at least some of them. So that, uh, that I think is uh, one of the advantages of my approach is like every set is kind of for me because whatever they're putting in the draft format, I could potentially harvest from. Yeah, that was, that was next up on my, questions here is does limiting power level in your cube allow you to play certain archetypes you wouldn't be able to otherwise like are there other cards that you uh, are able to play that you wouldn't be able to play with a higher power level i'd say the vast majority of my cube is yeah. just cards that are too weak for any other approach like you were mentioning starlight invoker you know who's going to dump eight mana to gain five life well you'd need a pretty weak environment yep yeah, and I mean, it's just random four and five drops that are terrible in any other environment. Like, I have Core Cartographer because Solemn Simulacrum was being used to too much advantage with Trading Post. Like, people were just really happy to pay five mana and spend whole turns just grinding out a card or two a turn. Uh, so I, <laughs> I had to take out Solemn Simulacrum because it was just too much long-term advantage. <laughs> core Cartographer is solid enough, though. Yeah, and it, it yeah. synergizes with, you know, uh, dual lands that have basic land types and that kind of thing. It's, it, yeah. it totally works and it's playable in my cube. Yeah. It's just, you know, I, I'm deliberately picking a card that's like half as good. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I noticed a couple more cards that are kind of like that where you'll choose not a, not strictly, but almost strictly worse card than another one that you might be able to play instead, like Pillar of Light versus, say, Valorous Stance. You know, the, yeah. the cost is higher, and it has a mode that doesn't exist. Yeah. I frequently find myself thinking, yeah, I'll just... I, I wish that this card had two more mana attacked onto its cost so that I could <laughs> use it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's very much about intentionally picking the weaker choice, and sometimes it is strictly weaker. <laughs> yeah, like Enfeeblement versus Deadweight. Yeah, it's it's a perfect example. It's just actually double the cost. Yeah, actually double. And it's um, a highly playable card. Right. It's good removal. Well, I mean, Enfeeblement is still strong. Yeah, you yeah. Two mana, and you're, you're permanently giving a creature minus two, minus two. Yeah. That's even. There's actually another one that's uh, in between these. It's one and a black. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, the new one from Kansatark here. Yeah. Is there a reason why you're choosing the, the double black one over one that costs the same but is easier to cast? Uh, it's just to make it in a heavier black deck. The one and a black would probably be played in almost any deck that had black mana mm -hmm. and and there is you know much more fixing in my cube than there is in a regular booster draft so splashes are pretty easy and i'm fine with that in general you know there's going to be some removal that's just taken pretty broadly because it's removal and you know somebody can add that as their their third color or something but i'd like to have some that are a little harder for just anybody to pick up okay
Let's see, what else did I notice? Oh, yeah, you don't have any Planeswalkers. Nope. Not even Tybalt. No. <laughs> oh, and actually, Tybalt, Tybalt has been in, but I eroded it to not have random discard, and it was fine. But, yeah. <laughs> fine, he wasn't even great without that. <laughs> he was he, he was great when Squee was in. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but... Uh, <laughs> Those two cards I I don't put in together anymore, and Squee (laughs) Squee is often the best card in the cube by a substantial margin because of the ability to gain cards over time, which is the grindy nature. Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah, and there's there's plenty of ways to turn that into advantage. Yeah. I, I mean, we, we would even have games that you know would be swung wildly by casting Squee and sacrificing to Arms Dealer all the time. <laughs> like you just, you just get a card every turn. It's <laughs> yeah, it's great. Yeah. Okay, so all that being said about weak cards, I did notice some more powerful cards in your cube. Uh-huh. Things that you would definitely see in a higher powered list, or would be ridiculous bombs and limited. Right. Um, like, so in white you have Thalia, you have Hallowed Spirit Keeper, and Dogatar, which I've seen just take over games myself. Uh-huh. But the but the other two are just kind of like really good cards, right? Yeah. And Thalia is more like a a minor punishment to the control inclination. Like sometimes, like two drops are pretty weak in my cube. Like for because of the phenomenon I was describing, where you know there's going to be plenty of two fours or two threes or something on the opposing side. Yeah, like like you've got like glory seekers with the ability to tap and remove things from the graveyard. Right? Yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> <laughs> I mean that card is actually you know useful because of just hating on graveyards, which is another thing that right. ends up being very important because of the recursion engines and mm-hmm. different things that people are doing in my cube. Mm-hmm. But like Thalia, having that ability that just slightly slows down the opponent, it ends up being valid or useful in an aggro deck, and I have to do little favors for aggro to keep it more uh, plausible and playable. Right. You need to slow the control decks down even more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, and and something like Dogatar is at the top end yeah, of that, like that power seems, level. That seems like it's at the top. It's it's a pretty recent ad, and I've only seen it in action a few times. It is very impressive. Uh, a four-mana 4-4, four, four, even without any other text with Vigilance, would be pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> and it's got the ability to steal counters from your opponent's creatures. and Yeah, the ability is relevant, for sure. Yeah. I, I haven't actually seen anybody activate it yet, because everybody who has white mana just picks it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't know how long that one will last, if it starts doing insane things or you know, turning right. boards around on its own, but uh, I do have more powerful cards, and you know, I, I aim for them to have some unanticipated interaction, or they enable something. Like, yeah. uh, for a while, I had a plus-one-plus-one counter theme, so the the Dagatar definitely was on my list of considerations from using that more extensively. I kind of want them to make another set with Proliferate so that I can have some more uh, <laughs> cards to play with. That, I, that, I would that actually really love more Proliferate cards myself. Yeah. There's really only two playable ones <laughs> in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I have Viral Drake as like a standalone, only Infect card, only Proliferate card in the uh. queue, but it, it just does it does uh, <laughs> fascinating things. Uh, it's always interesting. I have died to poison just from Viral Drake. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> it, it, it's a slow environment, so, you know, inevitability matters. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to go through some of the other colors, too, here. Sure. Snapcaster Mage and Gifts Ungiven. Uh-huh. This seemed really good. 
in a grindy matchup. Yeah, part of why they're okay is that Snapcaster Mage, it's a 2-1 is a fairly low value, and the cards that you're flashing back have higher mana costs than mm-hmm. what you might be getting back in a, another cube. Mm-hmm. So you're you're getting a less efficient overall result, and it's not as likely to be a two-for-one. You're just you're mostly getting back the spell. It's almost like an Archaeomancer that happens to you know have a, a different mana cost and a different time window on when you can cast the spell. Which you do also play. Archaeo yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Archaeomancer. Strictly totally worse Snapcaster Mage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you can play the you can play the spell on a future turn. It's a little different. <laughs> it's a little different. It's yeah. not strictly worse. It, it is four mana for a one-two. <laughs> but yeah, four um, mana. Uh, what what is that? Um, squire. Four mana yeah. squire. <laughs> yeah. Gifts ungiven is actually you know one of the things that is problematic about it is have as many great cards. So like using it as a quasi tutor is harder. Actually, the player who uses it most in my cube group most frequently he's getting four lands, and it's just like this combination of non basics that you know maybe it gave him a couple of cycling lands, or it gives him it guarantees him the fixing that he needed to cast some spell that had a double cost in another color. But that that's the most common play with gifts I give it is to get four lands. You can just play realms <laughs> uncharted in that case. <laughs> I have I have put it in, and the lack of flexibility to do other options has a negative impact on people using it. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, it. Uh, it, it gives a given can also enable reanimation stuff because there is reanimation in my cube. It's just way inefficient compared to what you might see elsewhere, uh, like Demir Doppelganger or Body Double uh, or, or Dread Return. You know, like these things are you're you're actually paying fair for them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the things you're getting back are much more limited. You're never going to get Gristlebrand. You're you're going to get you know maybe you get a Tidespout Tyrant or something like that. Right. But when you really want to find that one specific land you're looking for to use to cast your spells, uh-huh. you're going to use Vampiric Tutor, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's another one that it's it's just so much less effective because you're getting less effective stuff. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it, it, there's several cards that on the surface seem, oh, my God, this card is so much more powerful than the rest of the cards in this cube. Like, Yogmoth's Bargain is in, but you're... It's not that unfair when you're paying six mana for it, and when the things that you're the things you're drawing, you're gonna have to pay fair for. You know, you're not drawing a storm deck full of rituals and stuff where you just win as soon as you resolve the Ogmoth's bargain. Right. Uh, let's see what else do we have here? Damnation and Curse of Shallow Graves. Those are very strong. Yeah, the curse uh, making a, a token every turn has done impressive things, uh, especially with like Grave Crawler, where the attack is free, and that's just. One of the cards that I have in there currently to uh, enable, what is the Innistrad one? Uh, Endless Ranks of the Dead. So, like, I, I actually trigger Endless Ranks of the Dead. I've done it in the last couple of weeks. So it's it's cards like that that uh, sort of provide the oomph that a weaker build-around needs. Mm-hmm. Um, Siege Gang Commander. That's kind of like Dogatar, where it just kind of takes over the board as soon as it hits, right? It is powerful, and it does usually end up being one of the best cards in your deck. Part of the reason why it's not as impressive as the thing I was describing about killing two toughness creatures is already available. Like, you, your deck probably has a way to do that repeatedly, and as a result, the opponent 
is probably not playing as many good targets for it or, you know, because you have to spend all this mana, you could have been spending that mana on something else. And the, the results of it could be just as impressive as the Siege Gang Commander. It still ends up being pretty good, but it, it being a 2-2 means it usually dies pretty quickly, even if you are trying to sacrifice the goblins and throw them at things. And the red decks are not as likely to have the opponent on the edge of death, on like turn five or something, where then they just untap and win on turn six or something. It ends up being powerful, but not oppressive. And it's a great target for Mog Catcher. So, you know, this is another thing where it's like, <laughs> oh, the, the goblin trap to have a few things to dig out of its deck that make Mog Catcher worthwhile. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Survival of the Fittest. Uh, I think that's one where there are creatures that generate value, but everything generates value at my queue. Like, there's, you know, there's gravediggers and stuff like that, but there's not necrotals or really potent hate cards. Um, so whatever creature you're getting, you're down the card from Survival of the Fittest, mm-hmm. so you have to make it up already. And so you have to go through, like, you know, two plus one interactions that were driven by the survival of the fittest to make up cards and be ahead on cards. Um, so it ends up being just a, a way to maybe guarantee if there's a particular creature that you really want to see. Or a late game engine where you're, you're trashing all of your, your early two drops for right. one of those big bombs that you happen to have in your deck. Ex- absolutely. Yeah. Uh, how is Knight of the Reliquary in the lands deck? Is it, help yeah and it, it is a powerful card but it often goes kind of late because sometimes the lands deck isn't in white or doesn't isn't really inclined to be in white because of the the red blue green interactions now that i've got you know the seismic assault element and the centaur vine crasher and the trade routes you know whatever ancillary elements are being included you know the deck is almost certainly in green but it may not be in white and so it's it's just as it ends up being a different deck when it goes that way. Uh, and the, the Knight of the Reliquary is obviously very powerful, but it still ends up being like one attacker. And in order to build it up, it takes several turns. So mm-hmm. it, it ends up doing a lot, but, you know, relatively being under control. Okay. So those were some powerful cards I saw. What are some of the other cards that end up being powerful in practice since you get to see what decks happen the most? Uh, I think Trade Routes is very, very notable. I'm scrolling through. Uh, Lab Maniac. Lab Maniac is at the, like, you can draft decks with it that you would never expect in most draft environments. I, I think probably the, the players of my cube have cast Lab Maniac more than all but the most devoted Triple Innistrad drafters, uh, <laughs> because you can mill yourself with, you know, Hedron Crab, and you can make sure that you trigger the Hedron Crab with either, you know, Oboro bouncing back or, you know, one of the Soratamis making sure that you can always trigger Landfall every turn. Um, self-mill is just, it's definitely available. And so you can, you know, dump your library and then... Well, actually, the one of the most interesting times I saw was a Doomsday Lab Maniac deck, where the Doomsday uh, ended up being a pile of almost all basic lands, because the deck also had trade routes. <laughs> and so <laughs> that, that was the fastest way to basically, in, fun- in effect, mill yourself for the other the rest of the deck, except for five cards. Okay, so some people listening might know what Laboratory Maniac do, and, and maybe even Doomsday, where you get to pay a ton of life and 
like looking in your deck for five cards, and that's your deck afterward. You exile yeah. all the rest of them. Right? Yeah. But they might not know what trade routes is, and that is okay. an enchantment for one and a blue mana, and its text is just one return target land you control to its owner's hand, and it has a second ability that is one discard a land card, draw a card. So all it's doing is just bouncing the lands back to your hand, and then you can use those as fuel to draw even further into your deck. Yep. That is a powerful engine yeah. from my point of view. Yeah, and so especially you know, it encourages these lands decks that have 19, 20, 21 lands, uh, and they just are very different from the formulaic, like, oh, I'm playing limited. I always play 17 lands and you know have 15 creatures or so, and you know, you'll just end up with something totally different when you have this, this combination of cards available. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see, what else is important? Uh, I'd say Dream Leash is notable because it's generally assumed that, like, the mind control slot, whichever card I have in there at a given time, uh, is the best card in the cube, just power level-wise. There's always, you know, I, I leave one mind control. It's either mind control or volition reigns, or in this case, Dream Leash. And I, I vary it up every once in a while, but, uh, it, there's always one. That effect is just so powerful in general. Yeah. No matter what the format is, especially the closer you get to limited. But yeah, you know, even even in a regular cube where you're playing control magic, it's a four mana effect. It's still really really strong. Yeah, absolutely. Some of the other cards, you know, like the some of the most powerful ones are things like Akum Firebird that are added, you know, recently because only a few months old as a card. Uh, but it's potent because it can keep coming back, and you know, a three three flyer is Good enough. <laughs> it's, it's sizable enough in this cube. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it, it can end games pretty quickly, and you know you can get it back. The sweepers end up being pretty important, just to you know keep your eye on which ones your opponent might have, or uh, what creatures survive which ones. Like wildfire is definitely you know, a deck, even if it's not in a lands deck, it, it can be viable on its own. Um, so watching out for creatures that have five toughness ends up, you know, being relevant in the draft. Um, but there's also, you know, sweepers that have different impacts. You know, we had the biogenic cleansing fire for white. Um, and we've had in red, we've got magma giant and thunder dragon. So there is you know, a pyroclasm effect and then a, you know, slag storm type effect, but they're on seven drops. <laughs> uh, and they, and they, they do it with five fives. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but they, they incline red to be a little more controlling, which I always find to be interesting because red is heavily a control color in, in my cube. Um, yeah, it can I, certainly go that direction. There's, there's, there are a lot of effects like that that, that enable a control deck. Yeah. And, uh, we have, you mentioned damnation, uh, then planar outburst is the current second white wrath. I, I usually have two. And I just recently added Awaken cards. Uh, they play naturally very well in the cube because you almost always have a need for mana outlets. Um, you, you want your deck to be able to spend 10, 12 mana a turn for like multiple turns if necessary. Um, so something like the, the planar outburst as a functionally an eight drop wrath, um, ends up being interesting. Have you gone through other wraths of that type before? Like the, um, the one that makes soldier tokens or the, Oh, the one that makes soldier tokens from conflux, that card is way too good. <laughs> I could never <laughs> like that's yeah, ending up with five creatures after the wrath or something like that is not going to go well in my cube. It'll just win the game, win the game every time. Um, you just want to, you know, wrath 
and then make five tokens and tap them all for your Chiron negotiations. I yeah, mean, that yeah, that's really sweet to me. It's, it's broken. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'll put in cards like uh, Sunscour, the Cold Snap Wrath. That's mm-hmm. like a seven drop, or you can exile two white cards to cast it. Uh, so it ends up being like you either are waiting l- way later in the game to cast it than the traditional wrath type card. Um, but you could also, if you're mana screwed or something, you can wrath, but it's all of a sudden like a three for three instead of a three for one or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I frequently use wraths like that. I don't use ones like Final Judgment because exiling a whole bunch of creatures uh, is too punishing to the recursion strategies. Um, so I, I try to watch out for things that just hose the things that I think are the most fun. Um, like that's why I don't have um, something like Rest in Peace or even Tormod's Crypt. The Graveyard Hate is like Withered Wretch or Scrabbling Claws. Uh, this this format is the like peak scrabbling claws. It's better than it is in any other format here. Uh, I actually just had a, a match yesterday that hinged on scrabbling claws and my ability to keep his graveyard under control uh, because I was tapping it for one card a turn. <laughs> Do you even have any uh, dredge cards in the list? No, dredge is not in uh, the self mill. I think comes in plenty of other ways. Okay. Uh, I, yeah, I haven't I haven't seen the need to try to. Uh, use that mechanic <laughs> okay. it's a dangerous mechanic <laughs> it's, it's a little dangerous it's really fun <laughs> yeah i think at one point i did have um the the dredge six card in just briefly but uh it ends up it, it's either too effective at milling yourself uh or it's just not playable like it's a very swingy card oh okay you can play the uh the uh, the imp though, like the three mana imp that dredges five. That thing would keep a game going long. It's got pseudo death touch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> part of the reason that I, I haven't gone with dredge is that it's complicated and just another mechanic. And uh, I think I had mentioned to you in advance of the the podcast that uh, I try to keep the cards more like shorter text, uh, simpler cards. Um, and it's kind of me buying into New World Order. Uh, like, I think that that actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, the people that I play with are also 10, 15-year players. Like, they know everything they need to know. You know, it's not like they couldn't handle more complicated cards. But I've noticed uh, that after they've gotten used to this approach of the cards generally not having a ton of text on them, when I add a card with a bunch of text on it, they, they'll complain. They'll <laughs> say, like, oh, so much stuff to read <laughs> it's it's amazing how people just don't even notice until they notice right um, sometimes the more elegant solution is the better one hello yeah i, I tend oh, to i tend to err i tend to err on the side of that um so i i usually will pick the more basic effect and actually a, a fairly small share of all the cards in the cube have keywords at all. Um, I was happy when they made scry evergreen, so I didn't have to count it as a whole mechanic in my head. Um, but I, I definitely uh, have in the past been borderline obsessive about it. Like my, my pre cube tutor spreadsheet had a column for words of rules text on the card. And I would count every single time, every card I was adding to the cube. Oh, that <laughs> I, sounds that that sounds awful to have to do that. I mean, I, I uh, 
yeah, I backed away from that when I started uh, with the cube tutor approach. Now I'll every once in a while I'll just sort of check by random sampling by generating like three sample packs and doing that exercise and sort of figuring out that that's probably the accurate average for the whole cube. Yeah. Uh, just do like the average, uh, like just take like a pack and count all the words in that pack, and that's your average of. Yeah, and I'm, I'm saying I, I, yeah. I'm saying I do that three times, yeah, and yeah. then I have a a sample. Uh, but I think that I am still below the average words of rules text count that new sets have on their commons as far as the, the whole cube on average. Oh, wow. Okay. Because I think I'm around like 18 or something right now. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, so you have also mentioned that you actually do rotate cards in and out of the cube pretty often, like you mentioned the control magic slot or... Or the, the second white wrath. Like, how often do you do you update the cube? I change it every week, and I have for like five years. Uh, barely a week goes by that I don't make changes. And usually, uh, sometimes it'll be like five cards or eight cards or something. But most weeks, it's probably fifteen or twenty. That's um, quite a lot. Yeah, and. Part of it is experimenting with cards that are so bad <laughs> that uh, you know, the, I'll add cards that I know are maybe questionable. Like, I don't know if anybody's actually going to play this or if it's just going to turn out to be like a fringe playable and somebody will find a use for it. Uh, so I'll add cards like that and then they end up not getting played or something pretty often. often. So a lot of times cards are in for two weeks or three weeks or something because um, we play about once a week and then sometimes you know, an additional draft on weekends and so the the cards get a few chances to be in the pool of cards we're drafting and a few chances to be ridiculed by my friends uh i can't believe you added this you know, that kind of thing in what universe would you ever play this card that kind of comment i get a lot <laughs> because i i sort of invite it by adding such terrible cards <laughs> and then every once in a while the cards are being cut quickly because they're too good. Like I'll add a card knowing that it's pretty strong or that it's probably on the upper end of acceptable. And then I'll see it in action. I'll be like, Oh, that's not okay. <laughs> uh, and I have to back off pretty quickly. Uh, primeval Titan. I thought was probably, you know, like it's just oh, a bunch that's, of extra lands. Too good. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I tried to come up with reasons why it was okay. Cause I thought it was a neat effect. Uh, but it turns out that even just a vanilla six, six trample for six is pretty relevant. <laughs> let alone when you, attack I, I feel like this cube under. wants an undo giant, not a primeval Titan. Undo giant was actually the first solemn simulacrum replacement that I put in <laughs> uh, before I stumbled out a core cartographer and decided that was the one to, the one to live with. But yeah, it, it's often the upper and lower end of cards that I'm cutting and that churn over pretty quickly. Uh, the other thing that ends up happening is uh, I'll I'll decide that you know I want to change themes. I think one of the uh, deck screenshots that I had shown to you or the pictures uh, was of a, a wizard morph deck that mm -hmm. was pretty sweet. And so you'll notice there are no morph cards in my cube right now. Yeah, I noticed <laughs> that. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll just every once in a while I'll add a huge theme and. Maybe one week I'll, I'll do 30 changes, and then the next week I'll do 20 more, and that puts in a, a giant theme um, that ends up being relevant for a while, and either the theme is sort of successful, like Morph usually is. I've had it in a couple of different times over the years. And then, you know, if we explore that deck or, you know, we feel like we've tried several of the interesting combinations and it maybe is getting a little stale or some of the cards are maybe not 
fitting well with whatever else I'm trying, I'll just swap it out for something else. Um, so there's been so many iterations of the cube. I, I like to think of it like, what if your favorite draft set, they just could change 5% of it every week. And it was just always new and always different. And then that seems really sweet. So I just take that approach. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Uh, you yeah. have um, a little under 500 cards in the cube. Do you ever seed the packs with the new cards, or do you just kind of let it hang out randomly? No, I, I just shuffle it up and let them appear randomly. There's new cards so often that even the cards that weren't added this week might have been added one or two weeks ago, and maybe we haven't even seen them yet. So mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't uh, add a whole lot of benefit for going to that extra layer of trouble. Okay. Um, what are some problems that you might have found when playing with this sort of lower power level environment? Uh, it's, it's the control inclination that I was talking about earlier where you just can't, you can't both tone things down and not provide a way out because I'm trying to enable these super sweet decks that it feels like your whole deck is playing their whole deck because you're going to see so much of it mm-hmm. and you're going to have the chance to cast draw spells and search your deck. And uh, you have this weird splash or this, this card that lets you, you know, enable this engine. Sometimes you're putting together like a Rube Goldberg machine of cards that end up creating your, your final push, but that same slowness and sweetness it tones down the element of draft that polices this aspect where in a regular booster draft, everybody's playing so many creatures that somebody who's wasting a bunch of time on this, you know, weird engine is not going to be alive (laughs) for long enough to see it come to fruition. So I have, you know, all this complex card choices that are in there to make it so that the control deck will live. And the aggro deck is not so good that you never get the chance to, do these sweet things, uh, but then you can end up accidentally making it so that the game never ends. You know, if you have two of these decks running at each other, what what uh, we talk about all the time is uh, the deck that has the most inevitability. And the the best example ever is probably my favorite game that's ever resulted from my cube was a deck that had uh, Touch of the Eternal, which is a seven mana white enchantment that on your upkeep sets your life equal to the number of permanents you control. And he also had Yawgmoth's Bargain out. So he had basically as much life as he wanted, but the only thing that was keeping him alive at that point, because he had an empty library, was the Yawgmoth's Bargain preventing him from drawing. Uh, <laughs> and so he was playing against a blue-white control deck that had multiple Wraths, it had the Myogen, it had uh, Day of Judgment when that was in, and it had Elixir of Immortality. So his opponent had the inevitability, but the friend who had Touch of the Eternal and Yawgmoth's Bargain had enough recursive cards, like restock and that kind of thing, to dig cards out of his graveyard. He ended up casting Sliver Queen, I think, seven times, uh, and it would get wrathed away. And then finally he managed to stick it without uh, <laughs> being wrathed away, and then he won. So he was playing out of his graveyard for, like, 15 turns or some some ridiculous amount of time with an empty library. But That's he ridiculous. was the only way he was going to win was if he could stick it before the Wrath came back. You know, if, he, if the Wrath got shuffled in, you know, he has to draw it again uh, in the opponent's deck. So that, that was uh, fascinating, but also it illustrates how deep this can go if you enable the right stuff. Uh, like, getting to the empty library right. stage is supposed to end the game, but he didn't. <laughs> 
Or it's supposed to win the game with laboratory maniac. Yeah, right? exa- exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, Lab maniac. Lab maniac ends up being one of those cards that, like, because the deck is proactively aiming to end, you know, it's milling itself. You're going to get to that end condition, and it's just a matter of instant speed removal versus the lab maniac versus the cantrips that the lab maniac player is trying to play. And so that ends up being interesting no matter which direction it goes, but it can be, you know base blue of almost any combination. It could be more of a controlling deck, or it can be more of a blue-green self-mill deck that looks more like an Innistrad traditional thing. Uh, we've also had Greater Good be the Lab Maniac card, <laughs> because you can have a board full of just random creatures cluttering things up, and then you'll cast the Lab Maniac, sacrifice your entire board to mill yourself out. <laughs> yeah, I saw Greater Good in the list, and that was another one I put on my interesting card list. Yeah. yeah greater Good. I like to find sort of quarter case uses for a lot of these cards. <laughs> it's, it's not very often you see cards that are like mainstays in commander games, but they happen to really be transformed when you take them into a cube environment yeah. like this one, where it's it's not used to like play a big fat creature and draw a bunch of cards so you can play more fat creatures. Now it's enabling a self-mill strategy. Right. <laughs> So another thing that you sent me before the show was that you have something about drafting two decks per person. I wasn't sure what you meant by that. Yeah, and that's our... It, it's weird, but it ends up being really great. Uh, it's a solution for drafting with you know three, four, or five people. And it, normally in a very synergy-intensive environment, you have a problem drafting with fewer than you know a six to eight person. Even a six-person pod is you know not going to have as many of the build rounds in there, so you can't be as confident that you're going to get enough pieces of whatever it is. Um, so at one point, you know, we were getting four people pretty often and the adaptation i can't remember if it was my idea or if it came about because of some conversation we were having was to have each person draft two decks and the way i explain it to people who are doing it for the first time is you're two telepathic people sitting next to each other uh in a regular draft you're just you're drafting two totally separate pools but you're controlling two seats of the draft and one of the one of the other players says it's just like if you're two people who cheat. <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> two people who yeah. cheat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Perfect collusion. So so it's like um so it's like two headed giant drafting. Uh, except basically. that you're well, in two headed giant, I guess I think of that as uh different because you're going to be playing the games with the decks together. So you're trying to draft two decks that go together. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this, because you're still only playing one v one matches. It, it, the decks are independent of each other and don't really influence each other, except that you try not to uh, hate your own colors. You're trying yeah. To ship, <laughs> yeah, you're trying to ship cards to each other. Yeah. Uh, to yourself. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's it's generally a train wreck when we end up in a draft where one or more of us has the same color pair in both of our decks. Where it's, like, <laughs> it's, it, it's particularly bad when like you have complete control over these two decks and you end up in the same color pair for both of them. You, you're just cutting yourself off at the... At the yeah, I, I had an, a, a different idea for for my own cube when when I was first testing it out. This a heavily synergy based uh, cube where I would just um, I would add more cards to the pack and then burn the last of the same number. So if I had, say, we would normally draft uh, with four people. If you had uh, f- five packs of nine cards or whatever, uh-huh. I would end up adding back the six cards that you would normally draft with. So you'd have you know, five packs of 
15, mm-hmm. but then you would burn the last six cards from every, from every pack. Mm-hmm. So you're essentially just making the, the quality of your first, second, third, fifth, et cetera, picks out of that pack, um, a lot higher because yeah. you have more options to choose from. You, you see this roughly the same number of cards as you would in a much larger draft. Yeah. It's kind of a similar aspect, except you're actually getting two decks out of it, which is kind of neat. Yeah. And the two, the two decks thing works particularly well because you then have four matches with each possible opponent. Uh, so you don't have to have one pair of people who are playing a long match, you know, between their two grindy control decks and then the other two people finish, uh, you know, in 15 minutes or whatever and they mm-hmm. just have to play extra games with the same match. In this case, you just play another match and you have, you know, so many possible options that, you know, you can get a lot more variety, uh, without having to, Wait, or without having to disrupt the other match. The other match can go on if it That's needs to. Pretty good. Yeah. Now, the drawback for other types of cues than mine might be that it does amplify how many bombs everybody ends up with. The one time that we did it with, like, I think M13, that was the real booster thing that we tried, the decks ended up being saturated with, you'd have six of every common that you wanted, and you have the rare, oh, wow. the rares always flow to the right place because you have to control these two seats. You can, you can guarantee that, you know, you have twice as many packs that are favorably pushing the right colors to each of your seats. Uh, right. so in a regular cube, it might just, I, I don't know if the same effect would happen because all the cards are good in a regular, you know, best cards cube. You would certainly see some stuff like that. You'd see the person who picks Survival of the Fittest get the recurring nightmare from the person passing next to him. Right, right. You would see that happen. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so, like, in mine, the flatter power level means that that's less a factor. Um, so you're, the rewards are less incredibly high for those first few picks being so favorably distributed to those two seats. Other than what you've developed for for yourself, what are the, some other design philosophies that you might have been inspired by when you were creating your cube? Like, do you listen to podcasts like Drive to Work or for the other cube podcasts for ideas about how to kind of influence your own design in the cube? Yeah, I, I read a lot of cube content and listen to podcasts from you know the other well-known cube groups, but. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of times I end up thinking I'm kind of from another planet than them. <laughs> like, like they'll be talking about these cards and they'll say, well, it's not good enough. Or is this going to be good enough to replace whatever card? And, and you're like, well, you're not even playing and, the other one because yeah, it's too good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, I, I don't need a strictly better than that. I need a strictly worse. <laughs> right. uh, you know, if you tack three or four mana onto this, I'm all of a sudden in favor. But, you know, I, I can't add cards like Siege Rhino or something. Right. Yeah. Well, that is why I mentioned something like Drive to Work, where it's a podcast about limited. Yeah. You know, where where you're you're thinking about in cards in terms of their limited application, or, uh, or maybe even li- limited resources. Yeah. Be a good, I, I listen to limited resources. I, I I do enjoy that, and I do draft whatever the current format is. Uh, sometimes I only draft it a few times before I'm dismissive of it because mm-hmm. I, I feel like I'm spoiled. I have the best limited format of all time, my cube. And so why do I need to play this other thing if I don't like it? And then sometimes they'll release a set like M14, which everybody is you know praising because it has this unique control feel. And I'm looking at it saying, well, only blue is control, you know, in my cube, every, <laughs> every color is control. You know, this, this is the feeble limitation. I've definitely done that myself too with, with having you know multiple cubes of my own to choose from, if I don't like a limited set, I'm just not even gonna go to and play. Like I'll go to FNM, but I'm gonna be playing cube with some friends. I'm not gonna be playing like Dragon. I didn't like Dragons of Tarkir, for instance. I yeah. loved Cons of Tarkir, 
didn't like dragons. There's a, a wild disparity in the number of times I went and played FNM because I have this other option to, yeah. to play with. Yeah, I, I have I have the same view on those. Uh, Cons of Turkey was fascinating because you know you have step zero, build a mana base as <laughs> like <laughs> the, the the fun part. Uh, is is <laughs> there a, a gain land in this pack? Okay, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, that that kind of thing. That's Whereas Dragons of Turkey was like more deliberately straightforward, and I couldn't get into it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but I I do listen to Drive to Work, and I I'm a little bit of a Maro fanboy. I assume that most cube designers have uh, some I think some I think degree, almost to, yeah. to some degree, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I've read his column since it started. I, I've basically always read it, even when I wasn't playing Magic. And I, I do think that those lessons and the things that he talks about apply in a lot of ways to what I'm putting together. You know, I have to consider the impact, both upside and downside of every card that I'm putting in. Uh, you know, it's not just about, is the card good enough? It's about what does it do to the environment and how does it interact with all the other elements and not creating that unfun experience. Like you might notice that there's not really land destruction in my setup and I don't really have great counter spells. Like there's not force spike or something that is the total feel bad card. Yeah. You've got cancel variant. Yeah. And they're three mana counter spells, not counter spell. Yeah. And so I think that I have in many ways agreed with a lot of those pieces. And then, you know, I I sort of react to them based on my own preferences and the preferences of my players to enable this overall environment. Uh, But I do, think that I, I learn a lot from that uh, design view of actual magic sets. Yeah, I, I think it's a, a really good resource. Even when you might disagree with something you know that's written or, or said, you can, like the actual application of it, you can still take in the idea of, well, this is how they were thinking about it. I should be thinking about my environment that way as well, even if I come to a different conclusion. Yeah. I think it's really a, a good resource to to hear and read a lot of. Yeah. Um, I, I noticed on your Cube Tutor that you have a lot of um, altered cards that you uploaded. Yeah. The uh, the images of. It's about it's about fifty percent at this point. About half. Yeah. Okay. And it's it's pretty hard to maintain that with the rotation schedule that I maintain. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, yeah, it's, and and not cheap to get the alters done, right? Unless you do them yourself. No, I do not. I, I am not talented <laughs> I, uh, I, I get them on ebay i've commissioned bunches of them uh, yeah it's okay it, it's definitely not the cheapest possible way for me to build this cube of cards that nobody else wants uh, you know i have a lot of cards in here that are worth like five cents but i, I paid 20 bucks for it <laughs> right yeah you paid a lot more for the altered version yeah of the <laughs> on these on a bunch of commons or whatever <laughs> right. And uh, I, I don't like foils really at all. So at least I can avoid that type of expense where I'm, you know, chasing the actually rare item. But I actually well, good on that. you. <laughs> yeah. My my pocketbook is a little bit lighter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I like the uh, uniqueness of altars. And I think that they, they stand out in a way that like just a, a foiled out cube wouldn't uh, be as distinctive. Yeah. The, I I really like um, the extension versions of Magic cards. I think they look really clean. Yeah. And you've got a lot of those in here. Um, what would you say might be your, some of your your favorite artworks that you've had altered like that? I've got an Iona's Judgment that was done by Eric Klug, and it is gorgeous. Um, 
I'm trying to think which ones I love the most. It's impossible because I love all the cards in my cube so much. <laughs> I, I always take the longest to build my decks when we're drafting because I'm like, I love all these cards. I can't cut this. <laughs> I, I added this specifically so it would do this. Well, know? I mean, that's why you play 45 cards like me <laughs> in my cube decks. I, 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 I manage to resist that usually. Um, some other ones. That I, I like my Hallowed Fountain altar. It's uh, from the original Dissension art, and I think that one is pretty good. Uh, the Brushland that I have, it, it's uh, from the, I think, 5th edition art. So it's got this purple sky that's pretty sweet. Um, I really like this uh, a Darker Wastes that you have here. Yeah, that's a good one. The, the man just walking in the snow toward you. That's really well done, it looks like. Yeah. I'm just and kind of browsing through randomly. Yeah, I, I, I'm doing the exact same thing, because <laughs> you know, I, I, I have to remember which cards are in the cube at any given point. Uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> because of the rotation schedule every week, I can be thinking of, oh, I was looking at adding that card, but did I actually add it? <laughs> and is, or so, is it still uh, in, even? Yeah, like, did I did I cut it? Did I add it? Did I add it back again after I cut it? Because I've had, <laughs> I've had cards that I've added and cut over the years, like, four or five times, easily. Like, Rampant Growth is one that comes and goes, because I'll uh, switch, switch it for cards like Fertile Ground uh, whenever I have an enchantment theme like I do now. Um, wow. And so it, the slots like that can change to serve whatever other purpose. And it's weird to try to remember what, what is currently in the cube and not. Um, and do you have a, like a custom URL that I can give people over the uh, airwaves here uh, for your cube? I can't remember if I ever made one. Uh, it's ID number 3255 on Cube Jitter. Okay. So, yeah, if if you're listening, do check this out. It's got a lot of cool artwork on here that's, really made his cube unique. And plus, it's got a ton of cards that you wouldn't normally find in a cube, so... You know, new, new things to look at for everybody. <laughs> yeah, I, I ran the comparisons with the Cube Tutor average cubes uh, of the 450 sizes. So like and, 10%? Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> the, the Cube Tutor 450, it came out to uh, 13.5%. The Popper 450, it was 12.2%, and the Peasant 450, it was 15.9% overlap. <laughs> so it's just, like, completely different. <laughs> wow. Yeah, definitely not the norm, but it looks like a ton of fun to play. I would agree. <laughs> well. Course, I, I might be biased. <laughs> I might be a little biased, too. I wonder how much this shares with my architect key. Let me, let me compare that for just a moment. I'm going to find out what that is. We share we share 75 cards <laughs> in these two cubes right now, so which, which, is, which is neat because, you know, we share so little even though our design philosophies for these two cubes are fairly similar. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I'm still gearing toward a little bit higher power level, but yeah. but it's still got some ideas of, you know, wanting to put in archetype focus. Uh, I think that's a really cool idea. And it's, it's to me, almost more interesting than my other cube that I've put in a lot of time and money into yeah. because I get a chance to play with very different cards than we normally would. Like, a lot of the cards that go into a traditional cube are cards that you've played in Constructed or played as bombs in your limited deck, but you're not necessarily playing these cards in these archetype-specific cubes where 
they were never good enough for standard or never good enough for modern, but they're still really sweet when you put to, put them together. Yeah, I, I feel the same way, and I, I particularly like when I could find cards that weren't even good in their own draft format. Um, I, I just I really enjoy finding cards that are just terrible but somehow playable or like they were only playable for a specific reason like rift sweeper was good in future sight because it could uh, get rid of suspend cards there are no suspend cards in my cube but rift sweeper is still playable and it's because it gets into these recursive decks and the recursive decks sometimes have to worry about which cards got exiled you know if your opponent had the dreaded scrabbling clause um, then you have to redeem one element of your your loop uh, so just being able to fetch a card out of exile is valuable. <laughs> yeah. And you it's... should play some of those uh, new processors from Battle for Zendikar. Yeah, I've definitely looked at it. Um, yeah. I I think I would have to look at the numbers of how many cards exile, you know, how reliably right. is that happening, because yeah. there's, there's not enough in Jess to really put it together if I was going to add it as its own package I would have to be confident that the rest of the cards caused it to happen often enough that you would usually be able to do it right right there's only one scrabbling clause for instance <laughs> yeah exactly if only they could reprint cards like that <laughs> but it, it yeah it's it's interesting to find these garbage cards that are great in my cube like codex shredder is an MVP half the time that it's drafted <laughs> <laughs> okay well i think that gives a really good impression for any of our listeners about you know what cube can really be other than you know your traditional common or common on common or powered or unpowered you know cube where you're you're trying to put in very powerful cards and and balance them still but yeah create a, a powerful environment this is a very different approach that can can lead to really interesting game states, I think, uh, and that's that's part of playing Magic and having fun is just creating things that you didn't see before and you know playing it out, seeing you can still win with it. Yeah, it is it is absolutely a different experience than any other source that I've found. I don't think I've seen another cube like yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, every once in a while I try to evangelize it in some way, but it's hard to get across the, the message of, you know, this type Play of game. Play bad cards, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody else is excited about some broken rare, and I'm talking about, oh, no, you could play this terrible 2-3-for-3. Three three. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I was saying the other day that uh, Bygone Bishop, the preview from Shadows of Innistrad, uh, is... Well, that's too it, good. It, I mean, it could basically be my invitational card, though. I, I think that it actually isn't, isn't too good, uh, but I, I love it so much. I was telling my friends that its nickname is Friar Phil. Uh, <laughs> like, oh, I get to spend a bunch of mana to draw cards? Like, yes, let's do that. And it, it's a spirit cleric. Spirit cleric goes with everything. Oh, it's a spirit. <laughs> <laughs> and I've definitely tried to have Rotling Reanimator be a thing, but there aren't enough clerics that really make sense. <laughs> you know, the, those, those onslaught clerics are just not quite good enough. But yeah, it's, it's that kind of thing that I'll, I'll be looking for on every card that comes out. Yeah. What, how about um, Shadows, Shadows Over Innistrad in general? Have you seen anything that's uh, at a low enough power level but still really sweet? Almost everything looks great to me. I, I love what they're previewing so far. Uh, madness is one of those mechanics that 
they don't have quite enough cards for me to really go out of my way to enable it, uh, but another set of it could maybe do it. Mm-hmm. Um, Macabre Waltz, when they previewed that, one of my, my Q players texted me because Macabre Waltz had been in for like four years, and it was just a, <laughs> it was a staple of that kind of uh, interaction in my cube. Um, you could discard a card for the reanimator deck, or you could, you know, loop Gravedigger one more time. Yeah. Uh, That's got so, great new artwork, too. I like the Dissension more, but, okay. yeah. I, the, the new one's pretty funny. I like it. Yeah. In general. Yeah. But I like all the things that they're previewing, pretty much. Uh, yeah. The set looks great. Groundskeeper was another card that was in my cube to try. Like, I tried really hard to enable it in my lands deck, but it just was never good enough. Uh, and I, yeah, I feel like I wanted to play that in my own cube, and then I realized most of the lands that are going to go to the graveyard are actually non-basic. Yeah, that's another thing that happened because of, like, cycling lands. Yeah, I made a, sa- I made a sad face after that, because yeah, when I realized yeah. it. Yeah, it, it was just very difficult to enable. So I, I would start from a position of skepticism as to whether it's good Chatters over Innistrad draft, but I was happy to see it. Every time that they reprint one of these cards that nobody knows is a reprint because they don't know the Mercadium Masks Uncommon Sheet like I do, you know, like, <laughs> like Cinder Elemental from uh, Gate Crash was another time when everybody didn't realize it was a reprint, and Arms Dealer in M13, they didn't realize it was a reprint. Arms Dealer was a reprint? Yeah, it was in Mercadium Masks. That's oh, I didn't know uncommon. that. Uncommon, yeah. See, I didn't know. Exactly. <laughs> You, you just got to look at that Mercadium Mask spoiler more often. So, so I, I might have known <laughs> if I'd stayed in Magic a little bit b- longer before my break. Mm-hmm. I, I stopped right after uh, Urza's uh, Legacy or Destiny, one of the two, basically right before Masks came out. Which, you know, you go to college and yeah, you know, you I, can I take a break sometimes. I, <laughs> yeah, I. I... I've seen all those old sets from way back when, but now I'll just do these expansive gatherer searches. I, I, I would use magic cards as info, but I feel better about abusing wizards bandwidth because I've given them so much money. Uh, <laughs> but I'll run a search like, I'm going to look at all enchantments this week to, you know, <laughs> so I'll look at every enchantment they've ever printed and try to find ones that might be ideas. Cause, uh, you yep. know, the, the churn rate needs so many new ideas that, uh, I need to be able to keep finding things and it's yeah. amazing that you know i'll make updates of like 80 percent of the cards have been in before but there are like three or four that have never been in before like flowstone blade i added recently i was i was so proud i found another stronghold uncommon that i could play or <laughs> a common i think <laughs> <laughs> okay so i want to uh ask you a series of 10 questions here okay okay so inspired by inside the actor studio uh we've got some cute Cube questions as opposed to actor questions. Number one, what is your favorite color in cube? Uh, I think I'd say red, especially the way that I've done it where it is more uh, of a control color. It just does so many different things. In regular draft and magic, red is boring, and I I wish they would give it more variety. Um, But in, in cube, I think it's the most interesting thing when it's interesting because it's kind of not what you expect. Okay. I, th- I think they're trying to improve red. They've been working on it. They've uh, been working on it. Yeah. I, I, a while. <laughs> another reason why I like Bygone Bishop and things like Faithless Looting and all of the card draw things are to spread out card drawing because drawing cards is so good and so, ne- so needed in basically every kind of deck to uh, enable the same kind of things that Blue's been capable of. Mm-hmm. So I really, I really like when those appear in you know, white and green and red. Mm-hmm. What is your least favorite color in cube? 
I think I'm going to be different than every other cube owner and say blue. Uh, <laughs> I, I tend to find it to be kind of boring because it just, all the cards are just drummer cards or some kind of advantage that you've always had. It, there's, there's in some ways no surprise or novelty from it because it, those things are what you're going to find in blue across the board. And, uh, you know, the cards that are powerful are just straight up powerful, like, you know, mind control effects. And Blue has had permission from Wizards to do everything. So it, uh, it isn't that interesting because it's had so many chances to be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What is it about Cube that, that turns you on creatively, spiritually, emotionally? Um, I find my Cube to be a great avenue for expressing my creativity like because especially because it's doing something so unusual uh, i feel like i'm really getting at something that i came up with and that i had to you know work really hard on to make it tick like to make it uh work the way that i wanted it to um, so it is definitely an engine of expression uh for me and i, I think uh, i really get a charge out of players finding something that I didn't even anticipate or didn't mean for it to be there uh, or something that I put in there, but I wasn't sure that it was ever going to actually work. And uh, so when I add one of these like weird build around cards, you know, the regular drafters will be like, Oh, you're going to be so proud of me this week, Phil. <laughs> 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 and, 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 and I'll, and I'll just be thrilled that their deck actually, you know, used whatever it is. Um, you know, the first time I saw somebody mill their deck out with greater good for lab maniac, I hadn't even added it for that. <laughs> But it, but it turned out to be absolutely the most important reason that greater good is playable. Okay. What turns you off? What don't you like? Uh, the unfun experience. You know, the I'd say the games that aren't games. Uh, and so I have very much minimized that by creating the pace that allows you to stumble at the beginning. Usually, you know, you can play against the punishing aggro deck that will kill you on turn five if you don't do anything or turn six if you're blocking a little bit and sort of tentatively fighting it. Uh, but the, the real feel bad is from the bomb rare that's just, there's no way to beat this card. And that was the, the thing that was being advanced about Centaur Vinecrasher, uh, recently was that maybe it's just too much. Like, it's not a card that you can beat in a reliable way. There aren't enough ways to, uh, interact with it in a way that isn't just forfeiting the game, basically. It's kind of like Genesis that recurs itself. In addition yeah. to something. Yeah. Yeah. And so, Cards like that are where I have to, you know, try to mitigate it. I either have to cut the card because it's too good, or uh, I have to do something to change how it's enabled. You know, maybe there's some reason, like Chronic Flooding made uh, Lab Maniac too good. So we had to basically ban Chronic Flooding because me, you can mill yourself. Hold on, let me look that one up. I'm not sure what that does. Chronic, <laughs> flooding, chronic Flooding is a return to Ravnica common. It's an aura that you enchant a land with, and when... That land becomes tapped, its controller mills for three. So chronic flooding meant you could mill your deck in like a couple of turns. And it made lab uh, it made Lab Maniac like a turn five or six combo deck, which is so broken in my cube. <laughs> uh, so we basically had to ban chronic flooding for being too good with Lab Maniac. <laughs> the curse of the bloody tome on yourself is okay? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's a little harder to do and it's only two cards a turn, you know. It's Yeah, it's only two cards. Yeah, it's it's definitely different. <laughs> Whereas Chron Chronic Flooding was like, oh, on turn two I wasn't going to do anything anyway. I played the Chronic Flooding on my own land, and now every turn I just 
you know, halfway through my deck before you even blink. So that that's uh, an example of uh, cards that I have to neuter because they enable something else being too good, even though that something else is fun. Uh, it's you know, like the storm deck. I have to enable it, but I don't want it to actually storm off on like turn four or five, like somebody might be imagining a storm deck. Mm-hmm. So instead, you'll you'll brain freeze for like four copies. You'll you know dream twist, flashback, dream twist, brain freeze, and that was my that was my big mill play. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's the rest of the deck that has to do the rest. Um, so I, I have to control the enablers of the fun. Okay. Uh, I think I know the answer to number five. Powered or unpowered? Yeah, it's unpowered. <laughs> <laughs> like, when I when I watch a, a powered cube game, I'm just looking at it like, what are you even doing? Why, <laughs> this doesn't seem fun <laughs> to me. Why, why is it interesting to play Chase the Mind Sculptor on turn two or whatever? <laughs> or channel so you, it and we're cool. So, so you don't even, like, go on Magic Online and play during the holiday drafts or anything like that? I, I tried it once, and I all but threw my computer away. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was so frustrating, everything about it. <laughs> <laughs> like every game is supposed to end that way and every game is just like the exact thing that I hate about magic. <laughs> uh what card or archetype do you love like the most? This is like asking me to pick my favorite child. Um Well, I was earlier saying that Bygone Bishop might as well be my invitational card, so I think something like that. Um I so maybe like mentor of the meek, or That's, a deck that wants I, I, lots of small creatures like that. I I do love that card. Um, I don't know. I, I I think that I've managed to make myself abstracted enough that I like every possible thing in my cube as long as it's doing something fun. So I both. I love the red-black aggro deck, and I love the red-white control deck, and I love the the storm deck that has to play a bunch of ramp spells because you're going to be playing the storm so late in the game that you want to have nine mana available. Um, you, you extracted the essence of like Mentor of the Meek and, and Bygone Bishop into the whole cube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> The idea of grinding out the game. There's a remarkable number of cards in my cube that say draw a card on them. <laughs> <laughs> and like you, you are going to draw extra cards almost all the time in my cube. And there are not that many ways to draw like three or four at the time you, because you're always drawing one and you just do it so often that I, there's not that much benefit to putting a card like a, a tidings in. It would be, it would be good, but you know, it's superfluous. Everybody has cantrip.deck. Yeah. All right. What card or archetype do you hate? Uh, I would say the land destruction mono red is one of my least favorite in all of magic. It's uh, just the fun police. Like everybody else is trying to have a good time. And then mono red comes along and, Oh, you didn't get to cast any spells or, Oh, you didn't draw your one protection from red creature or whatever it is. Your, your timely wrath that happens to save you. Um, it just, uh, it cuts off all the sweetness. The sweetness is on, like, turn 10. <laughs> uh, what kind of cube, other than yours, would you like to try? I mean, mine has been a lot of things. I think yeah. I would I would like to try a well-developed common-uncommon cube, because I don't think I ever have seen one. Um, 
or I've seen one in person, had the opportunity to play it. I've, I've seen lists online that look pretty interesting, but uh, I haven't actually bothered to try to build one myself or, you know, met anybody who had one uh, available. So I think that that would be interesting to see because it's sort of got some of the same ideas where, like, it is cutting off a power band of the rares and mythics, mm-hmm. but it's still pretty different from mine. So, like, you're you're deriving the advantage from much more powerful tempo plays, I would think, and you're getting two-for-ones, which... I let them, I let players get all the time, but they're more incremental. Whereas, you know, like a flame tongue Kavu is, yeah, yeah. it would be, it'd be one of the best cards in my cube. Um, yeah. Or Necrotal, same thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, or, or God forbid, Moldrifter. Or Lingering Souls. I mean, <laughs> these, these cards, like each one of them would be one of the best cards in my cube for sure. And, and so there's, you know, common uncommon cubes, I imagine are littered with that that level of card. Right, and then they balance themselves. In that yeah, they, yeah, they try to uh, make it so that you're constantly shooting back, you know, two-for-ones, like, uh, I think some versions of Ravnica Block Draft, early, or original Ravnica Block Draft, where every card is, like, a two-for-one, so you just are grinding it out with these spells and creatures that return something from the graveyard or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think I'd be interested to try that, just to see how it plays out. Um because I think by contrast, it would it would give me some insight into maybe which parts of that are fun or unfun that I'm enabling with similar effects, even if my effects are weaker. Okay. And then what kind of cube would you never like to play? Maybe other than Powered Cube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know that I ever intend to play a Powered Cube again, but, you know, I, I like to think that I would be open-minded for, you know, whatever... <laughs> somebody had brought, uh, whenever somebody talks about their combo cubes, uh, mm-hmm. I think that it sounds like a fun, uh, mental exercise, but not a fun play experience. Okay. Uh, I think it sounds kind of miserable. So, uh, <laughs> I, I would, uh, I'm interested whenever somebody explains the kinds of things that are important when you put that cube together, but I don't know that I would ever want to play one. Yeah, I had Pat on last time and he has one of those that's designed for two players. And so, I think part of the 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 interesting aspects of a cube like that is also in the draft itself, uh-huh. where you you're paying attention to what your your opponent is actually drafting, what they could possibly have in their deck, and so then when you play those games, you get to see or or you get to think about the angles that you have to attack or things that you have to avoid. Yeah. When you when you actually play, I think it's a little bit more of a mental exercise in that way. Yeah, I, and see, the way that my cube gets that sensation where you have to pay attention to what your opponents could have is because they're going to draw such a huge portion of their deck. It's Whereas in a combo cube, it's probably because they can tutor so reliably. Yeah. Uh, but in mine, it's because they're going to draw so many cards that they are very likely going to see whatever it is. Uh, and, so, yeah, and you have to think about it, well, you're in your cube, it'll happen five turns down the road as opposed to next turn. Right, exactly. <laughs> the, the combo cube is compressing everything, just like yeah, you know, yeah. one. Yeah. Okay, and finally, if you were invited to Wizards of the Coast to design a card, other than Bygone Bishop, <laughs> what card would that be? <laughs> what would you design? It would probably be, like, some red enchantment that enabled a control deck, whether it was through sacrificing creatures to draw cards or something like that. Um, I, I would, I would almost certainly... Pick a red card because I would feel like that was the most unexplored and find a way to generate an advantage engine out of it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's cool. Well, 
Is there anything else that uh, you'd like to talk about before we close the show? I think we covered it. Uh, we, we already talked about the sweetest game I've ever seen, uh, weird decks that are possible. I think we've covered it pretty well. All right. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. Um, Phil, where can people reach you online? Uh, probably the easiest is Twitter. I'm at Dr. Sylvan. Dr. Sylvan. Okay. If you'd like to see Phil's Cube and draft it online, please see the link to his Cube Theater page in our show notes. Uh, that is number 3255, if you're looking it up directly. Um, if you'd like to comment on the cast or you have any questions or ideas for the show, please send us a comment on Twitter using at Cubers Workshop or myself at the Cube Miser to discuss any kind of Cube talk and to watch for new podcast episodes. Uh, thank you to everyone for listening to the show and join us next time for more Inside the Cubers Workshop.